bringing you the stories behind the standards. This is the BSI Education Podcast with Matthew Childs, Alan Sellers, and Cindy Parakil. Today's episode is our press conference. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs, and I'm with Cindy Parakil. Hi, Matthew. Now, the aim of this podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. And for this episode, we're going to do that in the form of our eagerly anticipated press conference. As regular listeners to the podcast will know, over the past few weeks, we've been asking you to submit your burning questions to us about all things standards, both personal and professional. We've had a great response. And thank you so much to everyone who's taken the time to get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. Now, we wanted to do this episode because at the heart of standards lies a very simple and engaging idea, an agreement between people about what good looks like, whether that be for products, services or processes. But of course, when you scratch the surface, as with any subject, things can get a bit more complicated. And this leads inevitably to lots and lots of questions. Now, when I joined BSI and started working in standards, I spent the first few months asking my colleagues loads of questions. And to be honest, I continue to ask them, probably much to their annoyance, about all sorts of things to do with the standards world. How it works, the terminology, the history, the seemingly never-ending list of acronyms. How about you, Cindy? Same here, Matthew. I had lots and lots of questions. And now with the standards world moving towards smart standards, I'm sure we'll have to all go through the same process again and get acquainted with even more terminology, acronyms, and maybe even a new language. (laughs) Yes, this is true. But I guess it's our job to be your helpful guide to the bewitching but often bewildering world of standards. Now, we're sorry we've not been able to answer all of the questions we received this time, but given the amount of interest we've had in this press conference episode, we'll look to do another one later in the year. Now, as well as thanking those of you who sent in questions, we should, of course, also say a huge thank you to the panel of experts we assembled who provided our answers. During this episode, you'll hear contributions from BSI colleagues Daniel Mansfield, Richard Collin and Stephanie Einan, plus Nick Von Burr from the University of Kent, and Dan Farrell from the Moulton Bicycle Company. So, Cindy, shall we crack on? Yes, we shall. If you could all settle down and take your seats quickly at the back there, can we have our first question, please? Hi, this is Karen from the United Nations Industrial Development Organization, UNIDO, based in Vienna. Thank you for launching the BSI Educational Podcast Series. It is a really great initiative to learn on the importance of standards and how they adapt to such a fast-paced environment. My question for today is on the link between standards and the WTO. More specifically, within the context of Brexit, what role is BSI playing in trade negotiations with the WTO and establishing bilateral trade deals with countries? Thank you. Well, thanks for the question, Karen. It's uh, really good to talk about standards of trade and the role of government and BSI as the UK's national standards body. I'm Richard Collin, BSI's Head of European and National Policy. So I think uh, I'll start with a bit of bit of context about the World Trade Organization and about international standards. Standards are an important part of the World Trade Organization rules-based system of trade, and in particular, the technical barriers to trade agreement. Now, this technical barriers to trade agreement has a, a range of signatories around the world who are required 
by the agreement to use international standards as the basis for their national technical regulations, unless, of course, those standards wouldn't achieve the regulatory objective that they have. And when you adopt international standards nationally and then use that as the basis for technical regulations, then this enables countries to drive down trade frictions. So if, if I make a product to a national standard in the UK and I can use that to comply with the UK law, but then I can use it also to comply with the law in other countries in Europe or in Asia or in Africa or wherever, then that reduces unnecessary costs and it reduces regulatory burdens. And then, of course, it, it, by doing so also, it promotes good business practice and consumer protection and so on. From a UK perspective, we mustn't underestimate the influence that UK stakeholders have, whether they're companies or consumers or other, when they're developing international standards. These standards are made by delegations from countries coming together and agreeing good practice. And there's no other country in the world that has more participants in the ISO, International Organization for Standardization, process than the UK. The UK also chairs important global work in ISO in issues that are important for the planet, ranging from things like aging societies to sustainable finance. And we're really pleased, uh, myself, Matthew, and all our colleagues, to be hosting the ISO community this September in London for the, for the ISO General Assembly Week, of course, the public health situation permitting. Now, it's, it, it's important in this, this question of international standards that all countries' stakeholders have a chance to influence those standards. That's why we have international processes in, I, in ISO and IC. And it's why all these delegations work together so that each national view is, is heard. Outside these structures, we do hear countries that assert that a standard developed by their stakeholders alone should be seen as an international standard. And they even maybe push for it for recognition by regulation in other countries. But but we don't see where the international legitimacy sits in, in that. It could be a standard accepted around the world in many cases. But unless it's had that systematic national stakeholder input from whichever countries want to take part, then we don't see that that's international standard. So th that's some context that I wanted to give to to the to the answer. I'll get more uh, carrying to the detail of the, the that 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 answer now about trade negotiations. And now the UK has, has left the the EU and we're out of the transition period. The UK is pursuing an independent trade policy, and governments looking to sign bilateral trade deals with partners around the world. Uh, we expect that these deals will have chapters on technical barriers to trade, including standards, and they de they're developed from the WTO Technical Barriers to Trade Agreement. That's for the starting point. And to answer your question specifically, it's UK government that negotiates with these other trade partners. BSI itself, as national standards body and indeed as a private organisation, doesn't undertake negotiations itself in the WTO. But we do support the UK government where needed, where appropriate, on standards-related issues. So BSI is part of that supporting infrastructure for government. The government reaches out to a, a wide range of stakeholders when it's, when it's looking at trade deals, and BSI is no different in that. So our Director General of Standards, Scott Steedman, he sits on the Department for International Trade's Strategic Trade Advisory Group, STAG. And BSI is also a member of the DIT newly formed Technical Barriers to Trade Thematic Working Group, which we advocated for for some time. 
we have regular engagement with with the Department for International Trade, but regular engagement with the Department for Business on how international standards are, are crucial for both reducing technical barriers to trade and uh, are a strategic asset for UK global influence. And in addition to that, we can support government, we can support uh, trade policy through our global networks. For example, as a member of ISO and IC, as I've mentioned, where, where we have connections with our equivalent bodies all around the world. Not only that, these connections go deeper in the Commonwealth, where we have uh, a Commonwealth Standards Network that looks to promote the role of international standards among the 50 plus countries of the Commonwealth. I'd say the international standards are a key part of the WTO system of, of rules-based trade. I'd say that, that also the governments, UK governments, working through the WTO and it's negotiating bilateral trade deals with partner countries and indeed with, with, with groups of countries. A BSI's role is to support government in that. We offer our assistance in enabling deals that make the best use of international standards to reduce non-tariff barriers around the world and to promote the, the interests of, of the UK while, while doing so. Boom! Karen straight in there with the big guns in her question. Standards, Brexit, technical regulations, WTO, international trade negotiations, it was all in there. Oh yeah, great question from Karen and fantastic answer from Richard. For me, I think it's important to stress how BSI is part of this supportive ecosystem that government refers to when putting together trade deals to make sure that the agreements make best use of international standards to reduce non-tariff barriers. So the link is that the UK government works through the WTO to negotiate bilateral trade agreements with countries and BSI's role is to support government. I also particularly liked how Richard touched upon the mutually reinforcing relationship between BSI and the UK government. On the one hand, uh, BSI advises government on how to use international standards as an additional tool to achieve policy objectives. And on the other hand, uh, BSI supports government policy objectives and UK trade policy through its membership in global networks such as um, ISO and IEC, as well as supporting the Commonwealth nations through the UK government funded Commonwealth Standards Network program, something that we will pick up in a future episode. Hello, this is Tom. I'm calling from Glossop. I'm not really... Um involved in standards in any way but i came across your podcast and i've been thoroughly enjoying it and um my big thing in life i'm a big cyclist i love cycling and i was just wondering how standards have unknown to me uh, had an effect on how bikes and cycling products and stuff are, are put together i'm sure there's loads of ways they've impacted me and i don't even know about it so yeah tell me more Thank you for your great question, Tom. A nice gear change there from our first question to our second, from Brexit to bicycles. Now, for an answer to Tom's question, I spoke to Dan Farrell. Dan is technical lead at the Moulton Bicycle Company and also chair of BSI committee GME25, which has responsibility for cycle standards and also the UK input into the work of ISO TC149 and SEN TC333. So, Dan, we've had a great question from Tom, so let's get straight into it. How do standards influence bicycle design and cycling products? Well, 
not as much as you you might think. And indeed, as far as actual British standards are concerned, there is surprisingly little that really uh, affects how bicycles are designed and made. Largely, the standards will follow the designs themselves. Cycle standards are quite mature, at least as far as normal bicycles are concerned. The first UK standard was really BS6102 from 1983. And from this, most of the modern standard, which is ISO 4210, um, which is the big cycle safety standard Bible, um, largely comes from um, 6102. But we do have some of the older ones, some of the quirky ones that really do define parts of cycles. For example, cycle mechanics may know that some cycle screw threads are not something you will you will find any anywhere else. Um, and we have British Standard eight one one from nineteen fifty, which defines those thread forms as developed by the Cycle Engineers Institute. Um, And it's an imperial thread size with a metric thread form. No one's really sure why. Um, But when somebody sees one of these cycle threads and wonders what it is, you can show them BS811 and they can then see how they are are formed. There are also many standards that cycle component makers work to, but they've developed those standards themselves, Um, and it's all about fit and performance and how something fits to a, a, a frame, how certain things interplay with others and the cycle industry is unusual in that there are many cycle makers many frame makers but there's very few makers of the actual cycle parts themselves that need to fit to those frames so really the um the large firms are shimano campagnolo and SRAM, and there's there's not really much else other than those. So there's a large element of standardization, which is driven by the component makers themselves. Now, Dan, you work obviously work in the industry, but I I introduced you there as a as the chair of the BSI committee. So I'm interested to find out how how exactly are the standards developed. We um. We work as a committee that is fairly broad-based. So we have a group um, of those from various different areas who've been involved in in cycles for some time and have some significant experience. 
We have cycle manufacturers and cycle designers. We have members from trade organizations. Uh, we have those from the Department for Transport. We have a few from firms that have extensively used cycles um, who can all make a contribution into shaping what these are. Uh, and we have links, of course, into European standards and international standards. Um, that said, as I did mention before, the normal cycle standards are fairly mature, so there's no real significant changes that are made to those, but we have more recent developments such as e-bikes, we have cargo bikes, where these safety requirements, these performance requirements um, have to be more stringent than you would have in a, in a normal bicycle. Uh, so we, we do have new e-bike standards. Um, we, uh, we are working on cargo bike standards and in that situation we draw on what others have been working on so say in germany and in france um and we can then bring that into a single um a single cargo bike standard that's not really like how the normal bicycle standards evolved they came from the original BS 6102-1983, and they've been gradually broadened out, widened in scope, um, and are very reminiscent of what we have now um, in terms of ISO 4210. Dan, you've talked about some of the safety context in which cycling product standards are developed. I just wonder... Are there any other considerations? In terms of defining or restricting or showing what a bicycle has to be, um, standards exist only as one part of a regulatory framework which can contain such things as primary legis legislation, um, acts of parliament, uh, and secondary legislation um, which are statutory inst instruments, as well as some requirements that other markets may have. Um, so in the UK, for example, there's the Big Road Tra Traffic Act, which will have some things that cycles have to meet in, and we have pedal cycle regulations which will state some more things um and and sometimes standards will actually be named within legislation so it will say if you're going to sell this you need to meet this which makes standards harder to change um standards themselves are not normally a legal requirement in that way but if it's if it has been written into legis legislation you do need to meet them 
and it's of course a lot harder to change um, legislation than it is to adapt standards to a changing situation. And when are new standards needed? Sometimes when designs and technology develop over time um, or when something becomes some something comes into into widespread use some greater control some greater regulation uh, might be required and if we look at something like e-bikes they started off in the 1980s um, basically as a standard bicycle with a motor which needed to be smaller than a certain power um, and with very few extra rest- restrictions. They were basically bought into a regulatory framework as a normal bicycle. Uh, but now, of course, we have lots of them, and we've learned um, over the intervening um, 35 years um, that we do have to make extra provision and there are extra requirements. And we now have a very comprehensive e-bike standard, which is EN15194, um, which also brings in things like EMC requirements and the machinery directive and leads to what is a actually a much stricter regulatory framework for them than normal bicycles have. Then we get things um, like e-scooters, which, of course, are being trialled in various areas now. And these electric transport um, devices, there are no regulations or, or standards that exist. And as, as such, it's very difficult to judge whether a particular e-scooter is going to be safe um, or what it can be used for because we have no standards to test to. We have no regulations. Um they have to it is uh, it is almost an entirely new vehicle class um that obviously the obviously the government the department for transport want to bring into use um but need to do that in a way that is going to be safe and that's a great challenge when you've got something that you've never really had before I just wonder, Dan, with your with your experience having having worked in the industry for for such a long time, if on a personal level, if you could if you could standardise one part of the bicycle world, what would it be? Well, there are there's there's more than one thing that I would really want to um, want to stand, standardise. I'm not one for saying you must do things in this way or attempt to restrict what 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 is done but we've got one or two things um we've got things like like cycle lights um which we have a very obsolete standard in the U- uk um 
which is 6102 stroke 3, which is from 1986, which has been totally overtaken by te technology. Um, and it still, still, it still presumes that lights have filament bulbs um, and it's, it's like the LED revolution hasn't occurred. And we end up in the situation now where you can't really buy lights to this uh, original 6102-3 six, standard. And even if you could, you, you wouldn't want to, and they wouldn't work very well. Um, so that's one. And then in the general cycle world, we have the standards that cycle component makers use um, for things like chain ring sizes, where they mount to the crank and how cranks mount into the frame that make life really difficult um, for seemingly little reason. Um, and that's both for the, the cyclist who's trying to maintain something, the manufacturer who's trying to build something, um, the environ environmental cost of all these different changes that make it hard to service things. So if we take the take the simple example of the bottom bracket system, um, if we go back twenty years, we all had British standard threaded bottom bracket shells. Um which was two, as we we said earlier, BS eight one one, and we've had lots and lots of different variants and press fits and widths and diameters and bearing sizes. But actually, if you look at it, uh, it might be easier if we just use what we were using at the start uh, that we know works well is easy to work with and is easy to buy all the spare parts for. Thank you to Dan for his answer there. And Tom, we hope you feel that answered your question. You can find links to the work of the Standards Committee GME 25 and the ISO committees that Dan mentioned in the episode notes. For me, it was really interesting to hear how Dan's UK committee is working on e-bike and cargo bike standards and how it's now grappling with the issue of e-scooters. I was also particularly interested in what Dan said about cycling standards evolving primarily around safety issues and also about the three dominant component manufacturers, Shimano, Campagnolo and SRAM, having such power and influence on cycling product design driven by the needs of performance. Now, for those who don't know, SRAM has only been with us since 1987, whereas Campagnolo has been going since 1933. And Shimano, well, actually, it's Shimano's 100th anniversary this month. And of course, think the other thing about cycling products is that it can be as much an emotional issue as it is a technical one. For example, for many road cyclists, only Campag will do. But anyway, we had better move on before this becomes the BSI Cycling Podcast, although that has got quite a nice ring to it. <laughs> now, Tom did ask a cheeky follow-up question by email. He writes, what was the first British standard? Well, Tom, Cindy... Dear listeners, for the answer to this particular question, we need to take a step back in time. Standards have been with us for a very long time. In classical Greece, 
a standard was developed to ensure the quality of the pins used for holding columns together. Both the Greeks and the Romans used standards for making bridges and aqueducts safe structures. Standards were used in connection with the early days of trading. Pots, for example, although handmade, were produced in fairly uniform sizes, ensuring comparable measures. Coins were introduced in an attempt to have more standardised units of payment. Likewise, scales were standardised to avoid cheating in trade. The introduction of the metric system is thought to be among the first international standards, facilitating the comparison of distances across country borders and the preparation of more accurate maps. But standards for products and services emerged at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century, simplifying procurement and supporting trade and quality. And so this is where our story begins. Now, this is a story about a man called Sir John Wolfe Barry, as much as it is about the first British standard. Sir John Wolfe Barry was the man who built London's Tower Bridge. His eagerness to standardise engineering components at the start of the 20th century was spurred on by his work as a respected international consulting engineer and his close connections with the newly established National Physical Laboratory, which had started to set scientific and physical standards for Britain and its empire. Wolf Barry often attributed the deciding influence to his close friend, Scottish steel manufacturer John Strain. Strain's evidence to the UK Tariff Commission on the iron and steel trade confirmed that he had witnessed more efficient standardisation practice overseas, particularly in the United States. Now, steel was a relatively new material at the time, but the Americans were already using it in vast amounts for their new railway lines and emerging skyscrapers. The first meeting of the Institution of Civil Engineers' new Engineering Standards Committee took place in April 1901. What started as a single committee with sub-panels of leading engineers and industrialists focusing on norms for British transport and construction materials would eventually develop into the British Standards Institution with its hundreds of committees covering a vast range of standards. The first British standard, BS1, which defined standard rolled steel sections for structural purposes, was published in February 1903. And sticking with our cycling theme, that's the same year as the first ever Tour de France. BS1 was quickly adopted for use in India, where all structural steelwork for public works had to be specified using it. These sections were to be almost identical to the catalogue of products of the then largest British steel producer, Dorman Long. In the end, the first six British standards to be published were for products from the steel industry. In fact, steel was the subject of 30 out of the first 110 British standards published. By November 1904, BS1 was complemented by BS4, which tabulated the properties of beams of standard section. The properties of other sections were published in BS6 the following year. By 2013, 95% of all rolled steel sections produced in Britain conformed to British standards. In due course, the American shipbuilding industry adopted the dimensions for rolled steel sections given in BS1. Today, a search for the term steel on the ISO website 
will show 6,000 mentions of the material within global standards. Our thanks to Nick Von Burr for providing the vast majority of the content for that answer. Now, Nick was formerly of BSI, but he's currently researching for a PhD in the School of Architecture and Planning at the University of Kent. He also wrote a very interesting book last year called Building Passions, which is all about modern Victorian architecture and is definitely worth seeking out. Now, Cindy, since BS1 was published back in 1903, BSI has gone on to publish 33,000 British standards. Any personal favourites? Oh, yes. After you and Alan overloaded me and the listeners with tea, let me guess what our favourite one is. ISO 3103, which is, of course, the standardised method for brewing tea. I wouldn't say we were, you were overloaded. But anyway, see previous <laughs> episodes where we have explored, yes, in some detail, the relationship between standards and tea and the thorny issue of whether it's milk in first. It is. Anyway, let's move on. Our next question is from Deborah from Brussels. My question is, what would the world look like if standards didn't exist? Thanks for your question, Deborah. Hi, I'm Daniel Mansfield, and I'm Head of Policy Engagement at BSI. And the short answer is that things would be pretty chaotic and pretty expensive without standards. Standards cover many areas where people have needed to agree things. They are why your bank card fits into the machine and why your phone works. As we heard earlier, BSI's very first standard solved a problem that engineers had noticed about fitting together great big steel sections. They noticed that they didn't necessarily fit easily, and so they met to agree some basic dimensions. Standards now cover all sorts of things like screw threads and steel cables so things don't fall down. And so building and manufacturing costs are cheaper. They cover safety of toys, so that in the UK, for example, the regulation states that toys have to be safe, but the standard shows how. They even cover the country code in your passport number so that you can travel. And they cover how organisations work, how they are managed, how they handle customer complaints, how they operate things like an anti-bribery system. During the pandemic, we have thought about guidelines to help people back to work safely and about standards for face coverings. And on a really personal note, way, way back in my early days at BSI, when I was a young editor, I was amazed to be handed a standard to edit on forks, shovels and spades for the garden. Standards really do cover everything. Thank you, Deborah, for your question and Daniel for your answer. For me, this issue is a really interesting one because I think it's almost a natural human trait to try and decide what goods, what's good really for anything. So if we didn't have a sense or an agreement on what good looks like for lots of things, I think the world would be a pretty strange place, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's, that's true. Standards really make the world a better place to live. I think of standards as a capsule of consensus-based wisdom in any field. So any product, process or service that complies with international standards provides me with a sort of assurance that it is reliable, consistent and of quality. Capsule of consensus. I absolutely love that. I'm looking forward to reading that uh, that crime thriller, the debut novel, debut novel even, from S.T. Andard, Cindy Parakill 
and the capsule of consensus. <laughs> Love it. I look forward to reading it too. <laughs> And Daniel is absolutely right, of course. Standards are, are pretty much everywhere. One mm-hmm. of my favourites, actually, is about the, the laptop, which we're both using now to record this mm-hmm. podcast. Well, there are at least 250 international standards embedded in a single laptop, making sure all the systems work together. Wow. Now, like Tom from Glossop, Deborah from mm-hmm. Brussels also had a cheeky second question. Let's hear it now. And Daniel Mansfield is again on hand with the answer. I understood from previous episodes that standards have a role to play in key challenges of the society, such as the sustainable future or the digital transformation of our world, but it's still a bit unclear how, so I was wondering if you could tell me more about this. Thank you. So if we remember that standards are simply common agreements, then we can see quite easily how they can address challenges of the future. For example, low carbon and sustainable development goals. If we think about that, no one country is going to manage to legislate for everything there. But through internationally agreed standards, we can perhaps see a way forward to help us meet those goals, agree common principles and measurements, and then gauge our progress against them. And we can take what we've learned along the way and use that to improve the standards. Thinking about digital transformation, standards can handle many aspects and in a, again in a way that goes across national boundaries because, well, what industry is just in one country anymore? Certainly digital industries. And that's, this could be about thinking about the underlying data and how it's handled, as well as how the technologies themselves should behave. As digital services come onto the market, they may need to interact with existing non-digital services, or they may disrupt them altogether. If we want to agree what good looks like in those industries, standards can be a way to capture that. And again, we can continue to improve and involve the standards as we need to, and in a way that's far nimbler than regulation, and in a way that just meets the needs of those industries as they develop and mature. Well, what jumped out to me there are the issues of standards helping people agree common principles, meet common goals, you know, and standards being nimbler than regulation. It was all fantastic stuff. Yeah, I agree. And Daniel makes some interesting points about how international standards can help achieve the SDGs, particularly those that require collective action of countries all around the world, such as combating climate change, SDG 13. International standards provide that framework or common language, if you may, to measure progress and ensure comparability. I think this ties in neatly with the point that Richard Collin was making earlier on standards being an additional tool for policymakers to achieve public policy objectives, complementing regulation and legislation. And if you think about the digital economy, the 2020 World Economic Forum Global Risk Report says that a key concern to businesses is cyber attack. So... This is the risk of data being hacked, breaches in privacy, and whether the digital ecosystem is secure. 
And Matthew, if you remember in the episode on ISO IEC 27001, we said that international standards play a key role in building trust in new technologies, and they can help really tackle concerns about cybersecurity, interoperability, and privacy. Yeah, that was episode uh, 19, uh, which you can still find mm-hmm. on the obviously on the feed. That was where we were looking at uh, 27001 and the issue of information security. Okay, then. Shall we have our final couple of questions? Yes, please. Hello, Ian Gardner here. Thank you for the podcast. The recent episode on the Young Professionals Programme got me thinking, and I have a couple of questions from that. Firstly, for someone who perhaps wouldn't classify themselves as a young professional and has been involved in industry for a while, but never with standards, what would you recommend they do to get involved with standards at the national level? And secondly, Perhaps for someone who has been involved with standards at national or regional level, how might someone go about then shifting and getting involved more in international standards? Thank you very much. Hi, Ian. Thanks. Thanks for your questions. My name is Stephanie Einan, and I'm the Standards Makers Engagement and Inclusion Manager at BSI, and I'd be really happy to answer your questions. So with regards to the first one, um, BSI welcomes everyone interested in getting involved in standards to do so. We want our committees to have diversity and balance of stakeholders, organizations, and individuals. And we have tools to help you find the Standards Development Committee, which best matches your interests and where your knowledge and skills would be most useful. The best place to start is by visiting our website at www.bsigroup.com slash get involved. So we, we look forward to hearing from anyone who, who wants to get involved. With regards to your second question about getting involved in international standards development, national committees can select a member to represent the UK views in either European or international standards development. So current committee members should let the chair and or the committee manager of their committee know if they're interested in being the UK delegate to an international European committee. Sometimes there's also the opportunity for UK members with specialist expertise to join an international or European committee as UK experts. So the starting place for getting involved in international standards development is actually the national committee. I hope that helps. Thank you, Ian and Stephanie, for your questions and answers there. And I think it's worth echoing what Stephanie said. If you want to get involved in standards, just visit bsigroup.com forward slash get involved and start your journey from there. Well, Cindy, that was great. And I think we should definitely do this again, don't you? Absolutely. I learned so much. We should say a huge thank you to Karen, Tom, Deborah and Ian for their questions. And thank you also to Richard, Dan, Nick, Daniel and Stephanie for their fantastic answers. Mm -hmm. A reminder that for more information on BSI education, go to bsigroup.com forward slash education. This link and others on the themes raised in this episode can be found in the episode notes. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and share us on social media using the hashtag BSIEdPod. And of course, do please get in touch with us at education at bsigroup.com. Well, I think we should wrap it up there. Thank you, Cindy. 
Thank you, Matthew. You have been listening to an episode of the BSI Education Podcast. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. You just heard a stripped media production. 